we need to think, what is it that we and the extraterrestrials have in common? The question I always ask is, what happens if every civilization out there is doing exactly what we are, simply listening and not transmitting? It could be a very quiet universe. listening to Widdish Inn's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1. Season 4 is all about aliens, extraterrestrials, invasions, and how to communicate. Should we end up communicating? This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and the Book Depository. And the book whose theme we're reflecting on this week is The War of the Worlds, which is perfect, really, for this season. Um, And the book is written by H.G. Wells. The War of the World is a novel in which Martians invade England, and the Martians are these worm-like creatures who intend to use Earth as a feeding ground. And the Earthlings are pretty much powerless to stop them so they actually oh, i won't give away the ending but it's a good read the link to war of the worlds can be found in the show notes my name is amy rose and in this episode i have a conversation with dr douglas lakosh who is president of meti which means messaging extraterrestrial intelligence it's a not-for-profit research and educational organization dedicated to transmitting intentional signals to nearby stars, as well as fostering sustainability of human civilizations on multi-generational timescales, which is a prerequisite really for a project that could take centuries or millennia to succeed. Thank you so much for coming on Widdishin's podcast today. So when it comes to aliens, has it always been something that you have been passionate about? Is it something that you grew up interested in as a child? Where did this interest in hunting for aliens begin? It did start as a child. You know, I uh, grew up during the 1960s, during the midst of the Apollo missions to the moon. So for me, that was part of the exploration. That's part of my experience as a child. And so as I imagine how I might participate in that, the natural progression is to go not just to search our own solar system, but much further beyond. The galaxy is a much larger place than that. Unfortunately, we can't go there by spacecraft, but we can travel by means of radio signals. And so that's the foundation of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, how we listen for signals from aliens who may be out there, and also how we try to contact them. Douglas, you decided to leave the SETI Institute who were waiting to receive signals because you wanted to go away and start sending signals. Can you tell me the story about that particular move? That's correct. Yeah. For 16 years, uh, I worked at the SETI Institute as the director of interstellar message composition. 
And like a lot of the other SETI organizations, the focus there was on searching for signals that we could detect tonight. I mean, we could succeed in the short run. And I think that's a, a reasonable way to start searching when we are in our youth. You know, we've been searching for signals for a little over 50 years. But in addition to that, I think we should also be transmitting. The question I always ask is, what happens if every civilization out there is doing exactly what we are, simply listening and not transmitting? It could be a very quiet universe. So there wasn't interest at the SETI Institute or other SETI organizations for going ahead with this more active approach. We call it active SETI or METI, Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So a number of colleagues and I founded a new organization called METI International that has as its core mission transmitting powerful, intentional signals to nearby stars in the hope of getting response. And how are you sending these signals? Because I find it hard to get a signal on my mobile phone at the moment where I live. So how are you able to send signals into space and how do you know that it's working? Well, you can't go very far when you go by spacecraft. So NASA has sent out some spacecraft that have messages to extraterrestrials, two Voyager spacecraft that have recordings on them, Pioneer spacecraft with metal plaques, but spacecraft travel slow, slowly that it'll be 70,000 years before one of those is even close to another star. But by using radio transmitters, we can reach the nearest star in just over four years. So light travels, light, whether it's at um, optical frequencies or radio frequencies, uh, travels at the fastest known speed. And so that's why that's a preferable approach if you want to make contact at any time in the foreseeable future. And what sort of messages are you sending? I did hear or read that you send messages that include humanity's most valuable lessons. So how do you choose what those lessons are and how do you send those out? At what times? Is there a process? Well, to start an interstellar conversation, we need to figure out what we and the extraterrestrials have in common. Now, I wish it were as simple as they'll know English or French or Swahili, and so we could use one of our natural languages, but that's not reasonable. And so we need to think, what is it that we and the extraterrestrials have in common? And one thing we know is that if they receive our radio signal, which you had asked earlier, how do we send these out? We send them with powerful transmitters that are used to study asteroids as they're coming by Earth. So radio waves bounce off of those asteroids and we can get a good fix on their location, their trajectory. Or in our case, we transmitted our first messages in late 2017 as part of a project that was launched by the Sonar Music Festival. This is a music festival in Barcelona. And to celebrate their 25th anniversary, they wanted to send music into space. And so that music is a great example of what we ultimately want to be able to express, something that is idiosyncratically human. But if we just start with music, that may not make very much sense. Yeah, so the yeah. message that we created at METI was a scientific and mathematical tutorial to help the extraterrestrials understand that music. But let's yeah. step back one step further. I mean, why even start with math and science? It's because that's what extraterrestrials have to have 
in order to detect our signal. If they're going to be astronomers, if they're listening for our radio signals, they've got to know enough math to know that two plus two equals four. If you don't know something that basic, you're not going to be a very good engineer. Yeah, yeah. And so that that's the foundation for the messages, some basic math. And using the only thing that we and the extraterrestrials have in common, which is the radio signal itself. So to introduce notions of time, we send radio signals of different durations, one second, two seconds, three seconds. And we send different mathematical notions and ultimately explain how the radio waves themselves work through very simple mathematics. Turns out you don't need to have a very sophisticated math to explain that. And when you do send this message out, it takes, I think you said, around four years and you sent the message in 2017. So is it going to take another four years to get a message back if all goes well? That's the best case scenario. And it could be four years if we were transmitting from the southern hemisphere, because that's where you need to be located on Earth to reach the nearest star system. This is um, Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri. We transmitted from north of the Arctic Circle in a quaint little town called Tromsø, Norway. It's best known as a tourist spot because people love to go there to see the northern lights, the aurora borealis. But there are also scientists there who are studying the northern lights by sending radio signals. And we use that to transmit to the nearest star that we knew not just there's a star there, but there's a planet. And not just any planet, but one that's a little bit bigger than the Earth, and it's orbiting at just the right distance from its star that it could support liquid water. It's what we call the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot, not too cold, just right to support liquid water. Now, to get that star from that location on the Earth where we were transmitting, we had to go out a bit farther. So that's just over 12 light years away. So a reply back would come in 24, 25 years. Do you imagine in the future that you'll be able to send these signals a little bit faster? Are you anticipating technology to speed up a little bit so that we won't have to wait four years or eight years to receive a signal? We don't expect from what we know about the laws of physics to be able to go faster than the speed of light. I mean, it's it's great when you're in Star Trek and you can just click on the warp drive or do a subspace frequency uh, radio transmission. But As best we know, we're restricted to the speed of light. I think what will change, though, in the future is we'll target not just a single star, but dozens, then hundreds, and then thousands. Because if you think about it, the only way this experiment works of targeting that particular star is if the entire galaxy is chock full of life and they're just waiting for our signal. And maybe that's true. And so that's one hypothesis we're testing out. I think more realistically, though, we're going to have to repeat the process over and over again, and then in the process go out further and further from Earth. But there are a lot of stars, even within, say, 100 light years, so a lot of very nearby targets nearby on a galactic scale. You've dedicated your whole life to this. And of course, you wouldn't have dedicated your life to this if you didn't believe that there were other creatures out there, the life forms. But how do you think the rest of the world is going to react when they realize that we're not alone and when we first encounter an alien species? I think for some people, it will be delightful. 
I think for some people, it's initially going to be a bit scary because of the images that Hollywood gives us of the marauding aliens coming to Earth to destroy us. I think that that fear is going to quickly disappear when people realize that interstellar space provides a natural buffer, a natural safety from the aliens. So I, I think the more common reaction is going to be, you know, some people are going to say, well, we knew it all along. You're finally confessing that. These are people who think that the aliens have already arrived. Scientists don't believe that, but I think a lot of people in the public do. But I, I think the biggest impact is going to happen, not immediately, but over the course of decades or centuries, because that's how long it may take us to understand the alien language. You know, we hope they start with prime numbers or some basic geometry, but even if they do, it may not be that easy to figure out exactly how they're unfolding their understanding of the universe and how it maps onto ours. So I think that the bottleneck in terms of the impact is how long will it take us to really understand and become come to appreciate an extraterrestrial culture. Once we can really get a glimpse into how they understand their world, then I think that could be transformative. And what about how these aliens are composed? What do they look like? You talked about Alpha Centauri. It might have a little bit of water on it. What sort of creatures would live there? And from your research, what sort of aliens can we expect to encounter, if any? If we're going to have an introduction to aliens, what are they going to look sure, like? Sure. There's actually right about the same distance out from as Alpha Centauri in the same part of space is another star called Proxima Centauri. Um, it is a, uh, a red dwarf star. So this is a star, you know, we look up at, at our star, the sun, and it's yellow. A red dwarf star um, is red. It's a dimmer star. It has a longer lifetime. But the very fact that it's a dimmer star means that if there's going to be a planet that gets enough sunlight, it's going to be have to be closer in than the Earth is uh, to our sun. Uh, and so it could be that orbiting around this star is a planet that does have life on it. The great challenge is trying to figure out what the nature of that life is. I mean, well, it, it's easiest for us to think of alien life as being essentially like human life. Because, you know, when when you get an alien from central casting in Hollywood, that's the cheapest to do in terms of special effects. Um, but I don't count on the aliens looking exactly like us. Um, I, I do think that they will engage with their environment. But you know, it may not be in the way that we do. So if you look at the human brain and how much of the brain is used to process information coming from the different senses, a tremendous amount of the brain is used to process visual information. We are heavily visual beings. And that could well work on a planet that has an atmosphere similar to ours that lets in sunlight. But on a planet with a murky cloud cover, you may need to navigate through that world through a sense of hearing or touch or smell. And so those beings could be radically different from us. I think the good news is we can get some clues about the variety of how organisms interact with their environments by the variety of life here on Earth. And so that's one of the starting points in trying to anticipate aliens. And then the last point is we're thinking about what would the aliens be like, is to recognize that 
these may not be carbon-based life forms, but silicon-based life. And by that, I mean they may be computers. You know, we have people projecting that over the course of the next century, computers are going to become as intelligent or more intelligent than humans on our world. Well, if we make contact with a civilization that's been around for thousands or even millions of years, they may well have gone from biological intelligence to artificial intelligence. So that's even more difficult to anticipate. What would their bodies look like? It may be more a question of what are their minds like? And if that's the case, they're probably not going to want to contact us, especially if they're more uh, intelligent than us. Because at the moment, the way humans are going, I'm a little bit embarrassed about how we are conducting ourselves. So you said in an article once that you think that perhaps aliens are looking at us the way that we look at animals in a zoo. And do you think it's the case that aliens are looking at us and observing and perhaps thinking, um, we're not going to go near those guys. They are going to annihilate us. I think you raised two great points. So let me look at, at both of them. First is this whole question of, you know, we have kind of an embarrassing track record, right? So who's going to want to come talk to us or, or treat us well? And then the second is this idea of the zoo hypothesis. So let's look at the first point that you raised about there are a lot of things we're not very proud of. In fact, if you look at the messages that we sent on the Voyager spacecraft, there were over 100 images of life on Earth. And there was an intentional decision not to tell the extraterrestrials about things that we're not especially proud about. There's no indication of war, poverty, disease. There was no nuclear mushroom cloud. And part of that was uh, to avoid seeming aggressive ourselves. But part of it was to say, let's put our best foot forward. But I think you know, the natural tendency when you meet a stranger is to try to show how how smart or, you know, how wise you are. But on a galactic scale, we probably won't be. So what then do we have to contribute? I, I think, in fact, it's the opposite, that, that if we do make contact with another civilization, they're probably going to be much older than us. And the reason I say that is we've had radio technology less than a century. If that's the norm in the galaxy, a civilization has radio and then they either annihilate themselves or they become contemplative and turn inward. But if that's it, they pop up for 100 years, we're here for 100 years, what are the chances those centuries are going to coincide? Virtually zero. The only way we make contact is if the other civilization has been around for a lot longer than we are. Otherwise, it's like, Two fireflies, each flicking on for just a moment in the course of a long night. What are the chances it's the same moment? Zero. So they have to have been around a long time. So they're probably more advanced than we are. And I think that gives us a clue about what to tell them that's of special interest. That instead of trying to show how powerful or wise we are, give them a reminder of what they may have forgotten what it was like to be a civilization, not knowing its own future, uncertain about whether we'll even continue to exist. So I think, you know, there may be more wise civilizations out there. I would bet on humanity being the civilization with the most exquisite balance of joy and sorrow of any species in the Milky Way. And so I think that's what we should communicate in our messages. 
Um, but, but then you raise the other question about, are they just watching us? And maybe that's the case. In fact, it's called the zoo hypothesis. And the idea is that the aliens may already know we're here, but they're choosing not to interfere. Or if you use a comparison with Star Trek, the prime directive, they're not going to interfere with a less advanced civilization. But, you know, as we know from Star Trek, if those less advanced civilizations take enough initiative, there can be contact from the Federation. And so that's what we're looking for by sending intentional messages to other civilizations. They may well know we're here, even though our leakage television and radio is fairly weak. It would be impossible for us to detect at interstellar distances. If, if we look at our development of radio technology in two or 300 years, we should be able to detect our level of radio leakage at a distance of hundreds of light years. So they may well know we're here. The trick then is how do you intrigue them enough to get a reply? And so, you know, so I think of it as going to the zoo. You know, you and I could go to the zoo. We see a bunch of zebras, but they know we're watching. You know, we know they're there. We're kind of like the zookeepers. But what if one of those zebras turns to us, looks us straight in the eye, and starts pounding out a series of prime numbers with its hoof? That establishes a radically different relationship. I don't know about you, Amy Rose. I'm not going to go down to the gazelles and see what they're up to. I'm going to stay with that zebra and try and understand it. And that's what we're trying to do, to be evocative zebras. You said that you wanted to send intentional messages that reflect how honest and how wise we are. And you also said in one of your TED Talks that you wanted the public to contribute to the messages that you send out into space. Could you give some examples of some of those messages that the public put forward to send out to our extraterrestrial friends? Sure, sure. This is a project called Earth Speaks. Uh, and in it, we ask people, what would you want to say to another intelligence? And one of the ways we analyzed those messages is just to use a look at the words that people used and how often they're used in these messages to extraterrestrials compared to English as it's typically used. And so we see some words that kind of leap out as much more often used in these messages, words like universe and galaxy. Well, that's not so surprising. But then there are these other more basic words like the word but, the conjunction but. And that's used 150 times more often in these interstellar messages than English in usual. Well, what's going on here? Well, we looked at the kind of phrases that the word but appears in, and we see it in, in phrases like, um, I want to make contact, but my neighbor isn't ready. Or I wish you would come to Earth, but if you do, be warned, you may not get a very good reception. So I, that one simple word, but, reflects something about our ambivalence of making contact. We desire it, and yet we're afraid of it, or we think other people are afraid of it. And, the, you know, there are surveys of, of um, what would the impact of this be on people's religious beliefs. And ac across the board, people say, you know, my religious beliefs would be fine, but I think other people's religious beliefs would be crushed. Well, if everyone thinks they're going to be fine, maybe this isn't going to be as devastating an impact uh, as some people think. You know, one of the nicest examples that we got is if you look at the phrases, one of the major themes that comes out uh, was this idea that 
this is a message from the people of planet Earth. And there wasn't an emphasis on, you know, I'm sending this message from Sydney or from New York or from some other city, but focusing more on the connections between people. And that's one of the things that SETI scientists have often imagined might happen once we do detect life beyond Earth, that the differences between cultures here on Earth are going to be small in comparison to the differences between humanity and an extraterrestrial. So we're going to feel more of a sense of oneness. It turns out that even before making contact, simply by imagining it and planning for it, we can start to emphasize those commonalities. Hmm. So let's just say that there weren't any commonalities. I've heard that there's two protocols that have been developed from the International Department of Aeronauticals. You might correct me on what it's actually called, but there's a procedure in place that guides humans on how to respond when we are interacting with aliens for the first time. Can you elaborate on that for me? Yes, and these are protocols that guide SETI organizations worldwide. And as any international protocols, there are a lot of therefores and thou shalls. But really, they boil down to two things. So the, the first protocol is what happens if you get a signal that looks like it's from aliens? And there are two steps. The first step is check with other colleagues using other telescopes to see if they can find it too. So we don't want to cry wolf if we really haven't detected a signal. We want to make sure that this isn't just a computer glitch or a prank being pulled by some smart graduate student. But then once we can detect it at more than one location, the second step is very simple. Tell the whole world. You know, if our organization, Medi International, gets a message, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the whole world. And so we disseminate it broadly. And then the second protocol is that any response that we send should be informed by international discussion. And we're using that guideline as we craft messages at Medi International. Our advisory council, our board of directors includes people from a broad range of disciplines, natural sciences, social sciences, arts, humanities, to really give us input on what we should say to another civilization, because it shouldn't just be a handful of astronomers from one country who make those decisions. If we actually detect a signal, if we really know they're there at a particular star, it'll be even easier to have a more rich conversation about what sort of responses we should see. Okay, so I'm curious about whether you've actually heard a signal and whether you followed this protocol and whether or not you thought, oh, maybe I did hear it, maybe I didn't. And your brain sort of went into overdrive thinking, oh, geez, what do I do now? Because this is actually yeah. when I need to apply this protocol. Yes. In fact, one of, the, uh, one of the changes from those protocols reflects the fact that they were first drafted in the 1980s. Those protocols were created before the internet. And so what that means is they really don't take into account how rapidly news will spread they don't take into account the fact that in the process of simply confirming with another observatory that some news agency may hear about it. No matter, you know, we're, we're trying to avoid any rumors, but just in the course of this multinational confirmation, 
news may well get out. And so there's been a, a change uh, over the years where we're now communicating very clearly with journalists about, yes, we found something interesting, but it doesn't mean anything until we've been able to follow through. So I think that's the biggest shift that we've seen. And it's because communication is much more rapid and widespread than it was previously. I probably shouldn't ask this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you heard anything, but you haven't been able to confirm it? Well, uh, the answer is yes, but I think not in a way that's going to be satisfying to you. You know, there's a signal, the most famous signal that's talked about was from the 1970s called the WOW signal. It was detected from the Ohio State University's SETI project on a telescope called the Big Ear in uh, Ohio in the United States. And the reason it's called the WOW signal is because these are the days when the observatory would be doing this automated search over the course of the night, and then it would print out the results. And the printout from one night had this off-the-charts signal indicated. And so the observer the next morning who was looking over the data wrote, wow, in the margins. Well, that's the kind of signal that in the early days of SETI, you would see it once, and then you really couldn't do anything. I mean, Astronomers have gone back to that same part of the sky many times, have never seen it. So, you know, there's no reason to take that seriously. It could have been a plane flying over or a satellite. Uh, and so it doesn't count as a credible signal unless you can replicate it. When I say that I've seen good signals, it's because now we see those sort of signals like the wow signal all the time. But because we can now immediately go back we don't have to wait until the next morning to look at the printouts. Built into the computers are a process of automatically going back if you find anything that looks good. And in every case, as soon as we go back, there's nothing there. So, you know, as much as I would love to be able to report that there's been a close call, there's the kind of random glitches that we're going to imagine. You know, that there are going to be certain times when a signal is coming in stronger. But in order to really be a sign of it being an alien intelligence, we have to see it over and over and over again. And that's never happened. I mean, the good news is astronomers have only looked at a few tens of thousands of stars, and there are billions of stars in our galaxy alone and billions of stars in the universe. So there are a lot more places to look. We've really just gotten a start. And in the future, you mentioned that we might be able to send thousands of signals a second. So it might actually be exponential. And it's exponential in both directions. So mm. when, when Frank Drake did his first SETI search back in 1960, he could pick two stars and he had to look at a single frequency. Now we can look at billions of different radio frequencies and we can increase the number of stars. So there's a project called Breakthrough Listen that will look at a million stars over the course of the next decade. And that's a reasonable number to find intelligence if it's actually out there and trying to make contact. And what are the chances, do you think, I mean, mathematically and statistically, that there are other life forms? Statistically, I think it, in the entire universe, it, it would be a freak accident if there wasn't intelligent life. And I don't believe in miracles, so I think there must be intelligent life out there. I think the trickier question that's much harder to really come up with a solid number about is how close is that? 
is there other intelligent life in our own galaxy? Would we need to go to other galaxies? And so it's also a question, though, of trying to understand the motivation of aliens. And in the past, we've always assumed that the aliens are going to do the heavy lifting, that they're the ones who are going to take the initiative. But what happens if every civilization has that in mind? That, well, we'll just listen and you know, what I hear a lot of my colleagues in SETI say is, well, we've only been having radio for 100 years. Let's wait a while. Well, I could imagine the same argument being made by an extraterrestrial civilization that's had radio technology for a thousand years or a million years. There's never a, an absolute point at which you shift from listening to transmitting. It may, in fact, be the audacious young civilizations like ours that attempt first contact. And so we're coming to the towards the close of this interview. And as you know, I asked the same question of all of my guests with respect to what you imagine being the norm in the future, what technologies or ways of life are going to exist. You mentioned AI and supercomputing, but what do you imagine the future holds? I, I think the thing that is in ways almost unbelievable to us. Imagine we go a thousand years into the future and we have been transmitting to thousands and millions of stars and we have been waiting for a reply. And over the course of all of these millennia, all we get is this constant resounding silence. I think the greatest realization that we would have is that by virtue of the fact that we are still listening a thousand years from now, that we've committed to a project beyond the scope of anything humanity has ever taken on before, that in fact, we humans have become this long-lived, stable civilization that we've been searching for out there all along. So I think, I think the biggest realization, the biggest development will not be an advance in technology but in an advance of ourselves and our own ability to take on a project for the ages. Oh, that's refreshing because it isn't looking so good now, but I guess in that context, we're just babies. That's right. That's right. But I think by the very fact of committing to the project, we can, in, in an important symbolic way, affirm that we can change who we are and we can meet our greatest ideals. Okay, here's a doozy and I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think we have aliens living on Earth already? Sometimes people ask if the aliens are already here on Earth and I would love to think so, but again, as a scientist, I need to put on my skeptical hat and say I need the evidence. In the same way that I would love to believe that one of these strong radio signals that we see once is really from an extraterrestrial civilization, but I can't believe unless it repeats and I can show someone else. You know, there are people who say they have already encountered other intelligent beings here on Earth, and, you know, who am I to question them? The problem is, what does it take to convince someone else? And that's what I haven't seen. I haven't seen any evidence. I'm getting contacted all the time by people saying that they have made contact, and when I say can you show me anything tangible that will let me believe all I get is silence? Mm, okay. So I have another question, if you don't mind. I know that it's supposed to be the end of the podcast, but... No problem. No problem. Take your time. Sorry. Have you recorded all 
of the content that has ever been received from space? As in, is it stored somewhere? Is it able to be accessed so that maybe perhaps AI can look at it in the future? One of the challenges of searching billions of frequencies for thousands upon thousands of stars is there's a tremendous amount of data. And so that data now is processed in real time. So the data just streams, gigabytes of data come in and are analyzed, but it's really not possible to keep all of that. So that data that we have observed in large part disappears. We look at it long enough so that if something good appears, we can go back, you know, a few minutes, but beyond that, it's not archived permanently. Okay, so it's all a matter of storage? It's all a matter of storage capacity. Okay, because I just had an idea that perhaps even once a year or every two years, we could be receiving a signal. And it doesn't make sense at the time, but in the future, once we've received 10 years of mini signals, AI might be able to decrypt a message. And that's actually a new idea. You've captured the essence of an argument by Dave Messerschmidt, uh, who is an emeritus professor of electrical engineering at the University of California at Berkeley. And what Dave says is that the sort of signals that SETI astronomers have been looking for for 50 years is really kind of an impoverished signal. We look for a signal that will stand out as different from any signal that nature can create as possible. And so that's a very simple signal at a very narrow frequency that has a lot of power in it. And it's good at drawing attention and saying, I'm artificial, but it's not very good at encoding information. But the whole point of communicating is to encode a lot of information. And so Messerschmitt's idea is that we should be looking for broadband signals, signals that contain a lot more information, but when information is encoded across a range of frequencies very efficiently, it looks very similar to noise, unless you know the code for extracting it. So your idea suggests to me this idea that maybe there's a lot of information coming in, but we haven't used the right code. And in fact, we haven't even tried capturing and analyzing all of this data across a broad band of frequencies. So that's another possibility as we look forward to the next 50 years of advances that are possible with increased computing capacity. That's the big constraint that we have in looking for signals. That's why today's searches are a trillion times more effective than that first search over 50 years ago, because we now have computers that can very cheaply process a lot of information. We can expect that to get better in the coming decades as well. You know what? I think that we're definitely receiving signals back. We must be because we've been sending signals out since we first launched our radios or our wireless, you know? So I think that maybe we're just not picking up the way that we should be picking up what they're putting down. That's right. Since the 1920s, 1930s, and then as commercial radio became more established as the middle of the 20th century approached, We've been sending out a lot of signals into space. And so, you know, one of the concerns some people have is that we shouldn't be transmitting because it may attract unwanted attention 
and the aliens will come to Earth and annihilate us. I mean, that was something that the brilliant cosmologist Stephen Hawking suggested. But the key point he ignored is the fact that you just mentioned, which is we've been streaming out our radio signals for a long time. And it's true that a civilization that is a mirror of our current level of technology here on Earth could not detect our leakage radiation out even to the distance of the nearest star, Alpha Centauri. But as we look at how our radios have improved over the decades, we expect ourselves, our own technology, to be able to detect that kind of leakage radiation out to about 500 years, and it's going to take only two or three centuries to do that. So we are on the, we are on the brink of being able to detect our kind of leakage radiation. The problem is we can't count on aliens sending that kind of leakage radiation because here on Earth, we're getting quieter all the time. We're finding more efficient ways to communicate here on Earth by using fiber optic cables, by having radio transmissions that are targeted to Earth. So we're getting quieter and quieter on a cosmic scale, but the cat's already out of the bag. We've already made ourselves known to another civilization, at least the civilizations that pose any threat to us. So again, there may be a duplicate of Earth out there that doesn't yet know that we exist, but that civilization also is not a threat because they can't come here. The civilization that can jump in a spaceship and come to Earth to do us harm, they already know we're here. And so I'd say if they're on their way, it's to our advantage to send them a signal and let them know we're interested in an interstellar conversation. And a peaceful interstellar conversation at that. And a peaceful one and that we are much better as interstellar conversationalists than we are as something edible. Our proteins are not going to be compatible anyway, <laughs> but we don't have to worry about getting eaten. Yeah, but they might want our resources, so we should be worried about that. Well, you'd think that. And again, this is the point that Hawking mentioned back in 2010 when he first raised this concern. He said, look, they may come here to strip mine our planet. Now, Hawking was brilliant, but he couldn't predict the future any better than you or I could. And back in 2010, we didn't know that there are Earth-like planets everywhere now. We knew that there were big gaseous planets like Jupiter and Saturn. But it took a few more years before astronomers realized that smaller rocky planets like the Earth uh, spewed throughout the galaxy as well. So it doesn't make any economic sense to travel great distances to get raw resources that are already everywhere. Well, Douglas, we will stop there. I could ask a million more questions because I love talking about aliens and everyone knows that. Okay, very good. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on Wittishin's podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm looking forward to having you on again. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode with Dr. Douglas Vakosh. Until next time, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Stay safe, enjoy the company of your loved ones, and of course, enjoy the rabbit holes. <laughs>